Let's pray. God of love, teach us what it means to love our neighbor in this world and live in your kingdom. And with Valentine's Day fast approaching and we're thinking about love, uh, open our hearts and minds to the power of love and how much we need it. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon to Jesus' followers, first and foremost, about how we are to live in God's kingdom, which has come uh, right here on earth in the form of Jesus. So yes, that means now, not just the next life. What does life look like when we live according to this kingdom of God, and not the world's kingdom. Uh, It is, as Sinead has suggested, the difference between building your house, your life, upon rock or sand. Well, for instance, let's get started. Jesus says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. Don't point out the speck in your neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own eye. Now, This passage is often misinterpreted and taken to mean that what someone else does is none of our business and we ought to withhold our disapproval of them and keep our opinions about another person's behavior to ourselves. But these words of Jesus don't mean that we never make judgments about someone else's behavior. For instance, the Lord's Prayer, which we talked about last week, and also from the Sermon on the Mount, says we are to forgive others. Now think about it. If we forgive others, there's an implied judgment there, isn't there, about someone else's behavior, or we would have nothing to forgive. And did you notice in the end of this little passage that I just referred to, when the condemner does remove the log from his or her eye, what does he do then? Then he removes the speck from his neighbor's eye. Again, there is a judgment of sorts. So, the point being, we are called in love to uphold ethical standards, the Ten Commandments, and the law of love. We are called to call out one another when they offend or neglect, especially when someone else's behavior victimizes another person, and they need an advocate. It's usually what happens with sin, you see. Someone is getting hurt. For instance, if we happen to know that our neighbor is abusing his or her child, does Jesus urge us to look the other way? He does not. So when Jesus says, judge not, he means, first and foremost, when we attempt to play God, and essentially condemn someone to hell. You know, try to figure out who's going to make it and who isn't. And we love to do that way too much. But we have no business, Jesus is saying, attempting to judge who falls beyond God's mercy. (laughs) 
We honestly have no idea of the depth and the power of God's mercy to reclaim human lives. Plus, for anyone that we deem beyond God's mercy, we will likely regard that person a certain way, as an abomination, someone to whom I will give no dignity or respect as a human being. This kind of judging, assessing another person's ultimate goodness in the eyes of God, all too easily becomes a license to hate. And then, of course, love is out the window, isn't it? Yet, we are called to love, aren't we? A great example of this um, are the judgmental t-shirts for sale in Buena Vista, Colorado that once were being sold by a Christian vendor. Have I, have I shared this one before? Does this ring up? Okay. Um, even if I did, it's worth it. Illustrates the point. The t-shirt has a cartoon of a, it's being sold in a, a drugstore that's owned by a, a more conservative Christian uh, person. Um, T-shirt has a cartoon of a uh, somebody smoking pot with the caption, "Hey, pothead! The only dope smoking in hell will be you." Okay, it's okay if you chuckle a little bit. It's, it is kind of funny the play on words, um, but think about it. If smoking pot is an unforgivable sin, God's mercy doesn't extend very far, does it? <laughs> That's a pretty small God. A t-shirt like that and the sentiment behind it is incredibly mean-spirited and clearly in violation of the Sermon on the Mount. Would you agree? It's not your place or mine to figure out who's going to heaven or hell. That's God's arena. But bear in mind, this God is a God of love, forgiveness, and daily bread. So don't get your hopes up if you really want to see someone not make it to heaven. You might be disappointed who shows up. When Jesus says, do not throw your pearls before swine, this is a statement about such judgmental persons. Pearls are giving what is holy, which for us means God's grace, love, and forgiveness. Giving those pearls to others who want an excuse to judge, hate, and use their religion as a means of excluding and punishing. See any of those people in the world? Yeah, sadly. But the really sly thing about this passage is how Jesus turns the table on such presumption. He offers us a wonderfully challenging and absurd image of a log in your eye. Now, to me, this this seems like unnecessary overkill, if he's trying to make a point, right? I mean, it makes more sense to say, before you point out the speck in your neighbor's eye, remove the speck in your own eye. (laughs) But but no, that's not how we... I not only have a speck, I have a log. Oh, my God. Goodness, where did the log come from and how does it fit in my eye? Uh, Just an absurd image. Well, there's a point 
to be made here that we ought not miss. First of all, we forget Jesus' words in verse 1 that if we are to be if we are to be judged by the very measuring stick that we impose on others, which Jesus said, we might be the, the ones who are lucky to get into heaven. But second, what Jesus... And of course, that basic point is the very standards we use for other people, whether we're church-going folk or not, if applied to ourselves, usually leave us in a pretty bad place. That's just true for anybody. But second, what Jesus seems to be getting at is those of us who are fond of making lazy judgments and sweeping generalizations about our fellow human beings are often the most blind to our own sin. And even worse, we might think we've really got it together. When we probably don't. Then we are self-righteous and now watch the speck turn into a log real fast. Last summer, I was in an interesting conversation with, um, I was at a conference and I was with a, uh, having a conversation with another pastor and a fellow progressive, um, liberal-minded person. We were talking about the political and social divide in uh, America that we now experience and about how easy it is for progressive Christians to point their fingers at our more conservative brothers and sisters on the other side of the divide and call them racists and bigots. Now, there's clearly racism in America that's a big problem and we need to address it and not look the other way, without a doubt. But my friend Rebecca said, but before we impose the racism litmus test on those people, maybe the question ought to be asked, how do we measure up from where we stand? Do we have something in our eye too? Maybe we should tend to that first or also. So here's an, here's an example of what I'm, what I'm talking about right now. Many progressive Christian churches emphasize inclusivity and tolerance. ELCA churches tend to be this way on the spectrum, although some much more than others. And on the spectrum of churches, uh, how, where are we here at Mount Carmel? I think probably more progressive in our views than your average church in America, probably, collectively. I know there's people all over the map. But we're ELCA, right? Anyway, here's the point. It is a sad fact that most self-identifying progressive and liberal churches that talk about inclusivity and diversity all the time are among the least diverse churches in America. <laughs> the ELCA, for instance, is the least diverse church of all Protestant denominations. We're the liberals. We should walk the walk better, maybe? We are, though, in fact, overwhelmingly middle and upper middle-aged white people. My point, many liberals, like me, for instance, talk a good game but ought to be very hesitant of accusing others of racism when we don't have many relationships with people and communities of color in our circles and communities. 
Or maybe it's just simply this. We all have sins to confess on this count. You with me? So Jesus' caution to us would be, before you point your finger, search yourself for your own shortcomings and ask for forgiveness. That's a cornerstone of Christian living, isn't it? Because we forget who we are and how much we need grace if we don't do that. In other words, be humble. Be humble. Recognize that you are no saint. And it's quite interesting that the golden rule comes right after the log in your eye passage. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So our passage today is not only about, you know, being real with yourself, which is a way of loving yourself, I think. Tell the truth about who you are. There's clearly an ethic of love at work here in the Sermon on the Mount. Rather than talking down to each other and being blind to our own shortcomings, Jesus nudges us toward respecting our brothers and sisters, even those with whom we have serious disagreements and doubts about, given all of our political diversity, might it be the case that we can do much more constructive work with one another if we are on a more level playing field of respect where we seek to find common ground with others rather than quickly demonizing them. I think that ties in with the Sermon on the Mount. I believe Martin Luther himself taught us the same thing when in his explanation of the Eighth Commandment, some of you will remember this, he urged that we Christians uh, not only don't tell lies about your neighbor, but on the positive side, defend your neighbor, speak well of him or her, and put the most charitable construction possible on all that he or she says. That's hard to do, isn't it? This is closely related to an earlier part of Jesus' sermon on the Lord's Prayer. As we know, Jesus instructs us, and forgive me my trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a nice little two-step. If we are forgiven, and that is God's unconditional promise to us, then the Lord's Prayer, or any Christian prayer, asks us to not only be receivers, but to enact and live out in our own lives the grace that we have received from God. So part of being forgiven is being a forgiver instead of someone who vows to get even. That's the kingdom of this world. This is what Jesus teaches us about prayer. We pray for God to act and we trust in God's goodness and then we walk away from that prayer and we join the cause and share with others the very good things that God gives to us. And so in our relations with each other, how do we respond first in love, not judgment? Again, judgment may be called for if a person needs an intervention of some kind or some tough love or if someone needs an advocate. Yes, but this is only because you love them, not because you want to take them down. I want to close with just an anecdote from um, my older brother Pete's uh, life, one that he's told before in sermons. 
It's the story of when he was a little boy, and uh, he had his he had his nice clothes on, you know, his church clothes, and he fell down in a mud puddle and got muddy water all over his clothes and his face, and so he was, of course, embarrassed. But his first reaction was to curse. So he used a swear word. Now, in my family growing up, swear words were not exactly acceptable. However, I think Pete was surprised that my mom, who embodied God's grace and forgiveness, didn't scold him for swearing. She moved beyond that quickly. Why? because my mom could see the emotion underneath his angry outburst. She could see that he was embarrassed and humiliated, and that was why he used the bad word. So what did my mom do? Rather than focus on the language issue, no, you don't say that. She discerned the more important thing was to tell him it's okay. So she comforted Pete, and she acted out out of love. We recently looked at the scripture from Isaiah. Do you remember this passage? A bruised reed I will not break, says God. A dimly burning wick I will not quench. These are God's words about how he treats human frailty. God picks us up when we are down. God forgives us and breathes life back into us. Does this excuse bad behavior? No. But the bad behavior may not be the most important thing in a given situation. So, the golden rule. Would you rather have someone blow the whistle anytime you do something wrong, or would you rather have someone who paid attention to what was actually going on in your life underneath and was there for you when you needed it? Okay, it's a rhetorical question. So, none of this is easy. We do take moral and ethical transgressions seriously, and we do not look the other way. And yet, we look at our own culpability first so that we are not self-righteous, and we remember that we are called always to act in love and forgiveness toward our brothers and sisters in the human family. So says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Amen.